This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, good morning everyone. Thanks for joining us on such a hot, sweaty day. Um, I wonder how you escaped the heat yesterday. We had my little boy Blazer's second birthday party yesterday in the park in the blazing sun and we got the hose out in the park spraying everyone and some buckets with water. I hope you've been able to escape the heat and the aircon's not too bad, not too bad in here. Well, welcome. My name is Brad Koneman. I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor and it's really great to see you all this morning as we kick off a new series, Waiting for the King. And a huge shout out to the team that did this incredible Christmas styling. Let's give them a round of applause. We had Katie Wong here late on Friday night with Jess Borman and Lily Norris and Jono and Clarissa, and it looks incredible. It's made this space our own. Well, we all want a better world, don't we? We all want a better world. I wonder what your vision for a better world is. We want the end of racism and inequality. We want the end of global poverty, the end of climate change, well, not the end of climate. We want climate... We do want the end of climate change. (laughs) We want the end of violence and war. We want, of course, the end of COVID. We're waiting for a vaccine. And none of that's to mention any of the mess and stress that we see in our own lives, is it? Anything that's wrong with the world we want to get rid of and we've all got a version of the good life or utopia or nirvana or heaven that we want to see realised in our world. It reminds me of John Mayer's song, Waiting on the World to Change, which I'm sure you're familiar with. He sings this, we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we keep waiting, waiting on the world to change. It's hard to beat the system when we're standing at a distance. So we keep waiting, waiting on the world to change. And you get a sense in his lyrics there that desire that he has and that we all have for the world to be a better place, for the world to change. But you also get a sense that he feels powerless to do anything about it, to affect real change in the world. Now, I know that some of us have an irrepressible optimism about our potential to make the world a better place. And some of us, maybe like John Mayer, are a bit more cynical. But regardless of where you sit on that optimism spectrum, a better world is something that we all long for. And at the heart of the Bible's story is this desire for a better world. Indeed, what drives the story of Scripture along is God's commitment to the world that he loves that's been broken by sin, God's commitment to make it all right, to make it all better. And this desire for a better world really comes into focus for us during the season of Advent. Advent is the start of the Christian calendar, starting today, starting four Sundays before Christmas, and it's a time of waiting, a time of expectation and longing uh, for God's King to come and make the world right. And over the course of this Advent series, Waiting for the King, we're invited as a church to enter into the drama of history as we wait for God's King to bring a better world. Today, as we kick it off, we're looking at that promise in Isaiah that Matt read for us, Isaiah chapter 2. 
a promise of the coming kingdom of God that will bring God's peace to the world. And of course, God's peace isn't just the absence of conflict. God's peace is life as it's meant to be, a life of full human flourishing. And today we'll see that all of our desires for peace and justice and progress in the world actually echo the heart of God, and they find their end in his coming kingdom. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to walk through this scripture together. Let's, let's pray together. Father, as we come before your word today, we ask that you would still our hearts, that there's lots that hap- that's happening in our lives, um, lots that is racing through our minds right now, um, stresses and anxieties within, and um, Father, still us, we pray, that we might hear your voice, that we might recenter our lives on you as our king and on your coming kingdom. Amen. Amen. Well, I realise that Isaiah is a very ancient book. It's an ancient text that is from a different world, really, to ours. Um, And so I want to spend just two minutes getting us familiar with the book of Isaiah um, so that we can understand this prophecy. It was written over two and a half thousand years ago, uh, and the prophet Isaiah spoke to God's people in Jerusalem around the year 600 BC, and it was a time of national turmoil for Old Testament Israel. They had two empires coming against their kingdom near the Mediterranean Sea. They had the Assyrian Empire coming from the north and then the Babylonian Empire coming from the east and Babylon ended up destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple and taking the people away to live in Babylon in exile. I've got a map for you. I've just got Google Maps, walking directions from current day Assyria up there in Mosul, northern Iraq, down to Jerusalem, and then Babylon is near, just south of Baghdad, current day Baghdad coming across. So these are the two nations, the two empires that were coming against the people of Israel in this time. And Isaiah is speaking to Jerusalem in this context of national turmoil. And as he speaks, he has two real themes in his book. The first theme is judgment. He's warning the people that these nations coming against Jerusalem are God's judgment because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry, because of their injustice. And we see this illustrated in chapter 1, which forms the backdrop to chapter 2 that we're looking at. He says that they're dumber than a donkey in verse 3, that they're sick with sin, that sin is a sickness. It's like they have open festering wounds on their body. He says in verses 11 to 17 that they've neglected justice to the poor. And in verse 21, he even calls them an unfaithful prostitute. So Isaiah's first message is a message of judgment because of their sin. But then alongside that, he has a message of hope. So on the other side of the judgment of exile, he says that God will restore Israel. And he promises to send a king to establish God's kingdom on the earth to bring a better world. And again, we see this in chapter 1. Right alongside the messages of judgment, there's the promises of hope. So in verse 18, there's a promise of forgiveness for sins. And then in verse 25 and 26, a promise of national renewal and restoration. So this is the context that the prophecy we're looking at today is written into, a context of national turmoil, invading armies coming against the city of Jerusalem, and the promises of hope for God to bring a better world. 
Well, let's walk through the text together. If you've got your Bibles there, we're going to just walk through Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to see that as God's kingdom is established on the earth, that his king will bring peace. Isaiah chapter 2 begins with this in verses 1 and 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. What does Isaiah see? He sees a mountain. He sees the mountain of the Lord's temple. Now, of course, the temple is God's dwelling place on earth, but it's also his throne. It's kind of like the White House. The White House is where the president lives, but it's also the seat of his rule, the symbol of his authority. So he sees the mountain of the Lord's temple established as the highest of the mountains. Now, you might remember the significance of mountains in the ancient Near Eastern culture, Ancient Near Eastern cultures and religions saw mountains as the meeting place of heaven and earth. You were literally closer to the heavens, the higher up the mountain that you went. And so for Israel's neighbours, they built their temples in the high places, on the top of mountaintops, closer to the gods. And so here in Isaiah's vision, we see one mountain rising up above all the other mountains. The mountain of God's temple rising up above all the other temples, all the other gods. One god who reigns over all the rest. Now, I imagine something in my mind, like Mount Fuji. See one huge volcanic mountain arising out of the foothills. And as you look at that picture, you're not like, which one's Mount Fuji? Which one is it? There's one mountain. There's no competition. There's no rival. There's undisputed majesty that this is the mountain. And for any sports fans out there, it's a little bit like Liverpool in the Premier League last year. They won by such an enormous gap. There was like an 18-point gap between Liverpool and the rest of the league. There's just absolutely no rival for them last year. And I can see Keith Meadows shaking his head last year. And as an Arsenal fan, I'm very disappointed as well. So one mountain, no rival. The mountain of the Lord is raised up above all the rest. There is one God... He alone is to be worshipped. And I realise that that's quite an exclusive claim that doesn't go down well. It's actually offensive in our modern, pluralistic, post-truth society. But it's a claim that's echoed by Jesus as well, that there is only one God and there's only one way to that God. Last week, I was having drinks with some of the dads from uh, Eva's school. Um, and I was sitting at the table, and on one side there was a Catholic, on one side of the Jew, there was a Jew, and it kind of sounds like the start of a joke. But we were talking about religion, a Catholic, a Protestant, and a Jew, and the Jewish man, they have a weekly Shabbat dinner on Friday nights, very involved in the cultural practice of Judaism, but he says he's not religious, and he was saying, you know, they're, they're all the same. All the religions, they're just the same. They all lead to the same place. Whether you worship Allah or Jesus or Yahweh or whoever, they're all the same. But Isaiah's vision is, no, there's one mountain of the Lord and all the others are nothing. How should we respond to this? Well, I wanted to point you in the direction of 
an article that our very own Alex Stark wrote for us during the Deconstructing God series. Surely there can't be just one true religion. I invite you to check that out. That's on our website. But I'm just going to borrow one of Alex's points here. And that is to say that truth, in its very nature, is exclusive. If I was to ask you what colour is the carpet, that would be a difficult question for me because I'm colourblind. But you might say, I think it's red. Is it red? Yes, okay. You might say it's red, and I might say, no, it's blue. We can't both be right. It's logically impossible for contradictory truths to both be true. It's either blue or it's red. When Christianity says that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again, and Islam says, no, he's just a prophet, both of those statements can't both be be true. Now, none of this proves that the Bible's claims are true, but it's simply making the point that exclusive truth claims aren't as dim-witted as we're led to believe. The Bible makes exclusive truth claims, just like in Isaiah's vision, one mountain of the Lord. And exclusive truth claims invite investigation. And so, we invite you to explore the evidence for the Bible's claims and the many good reasons that we have to believe that they're true. And we'd love to start that conversation with you. Our community is a safe place that has people on many stages of their journey of faith, and we'd love to explore the big questions of life and faith together. Well, back to Isaiah's vision. One mountain rising above all the others, the mountain of the Lord's temple. An exclusive claim but an inclusive invitation. Have a look at verses 3, 2 and 3. Isaiah sees all nations, every nation, streaming to the temple. They say, come on, come on, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. All nations streaming to the temple. When God's kingdom is established on the earth, all nations, all people are invited to worship him. It's open to all regardless of your race or your gender or your sexuality or your age or how good or bad you feel like you are, it's open to all. And here we see on display this, the, the Bible's unique exclusive inclusivity. Exclusive inclusivity. That is also reflected in the, the life of Jesus. And our culture doesn't have a category for this, but we see it here on display. There is only one God, and yet his invitation is open to all. So we see the kingdom of God, the mountain of the Lord's temple, established on the earth. But what will this kingdom be like? Isaiah paints a picture for us in his vision. Let's look at the rest of his vision. In verse 3, he says that the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's not just the nations coming in to Jerusalem, but the word of the Lord going out. The good news of God's reign, his kingdom of peace going out to the nations. In verse 4, it says that God will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. Now, you think about the many conflicts that we see around the world today. You think about the many conflicts that we saw throughout the 20th century. I, I think of the, the conflict, the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine we're watching The Crown season four at the moment, and the backdrop for that is the conflict between England and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, you think of the Rwandan genocide, the tribal conflict between the Tutsi and the Hutu, where they're 
neighbours are literally massacring each other. In each of these conflicts and many others, you see bitter hatred and violence where literally neighbours and family are fighting against one another. And, and the UN, our governments, pursue peace through diplomatic avenues or through military intervention. But here in Isaiah's vision, his claim is that it is only the government of God that can achieve peace. The government of God achieves what the UN cannot. Peace on earth for all mankind. As God comes as king to judge between the nations and to settle conflicts. And that results in the people putting down their weapons in verse 4. Let's read this. Verse 4. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. No more weapons, no more war. This sculpture is outside the United Nations headquarters in New York City. And it's this in a sculpture a man beating a sword into farming equipment. And it's the biblical vision that the UN has made its own, taken on as its own charter. I think of uh, the Port Arthur Massacre back in 1996 in Tasmania, where 35 people were killed. And following on from that, the Howard government brought in comprehensive gun control legislation, and there was an amnesty period during which unregistered firearms could be surrendered. And since that point, we've seen the homicide rate decline by 22% over the last 25 years. And suicide by firearm has fallen by 67%. You think about the terrible cost on human lives of guns and weapons of war. Imagine turning those guns into garden tools. Instead of taking life with weapons, we're cultivating gardens and growing veggies. This is the vision that Isaiah has of the peace that God's kingdom will, will bring. God's peace, God's shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, is not just the absence of conflict, but a life as it's meant to be, a life of full flourishing. No more weapons, no more wars, nations and neighbours living and working together in peace. It sounds a lot like John Lennon's song. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion. Imagine all the people living life in peace. John Lennon imagines a better world, but he also says that religion is the cause of all of our problems. And that's so true, isn't it? Not all of our problems, but religion has caused much conflict and much violence, many wars throughout history. John Lennon's solution is, if we get rid of religion, then we'll see peace on earth. But Isaiah's vision is that true and lasting peace comes by submitting ourselves to God's rule by coming to his temple mount to worship him. No human ambition or action can bring true and lasting peace on earth. Only God himself can bring peace as he brings his kingdom. We all long for a better world. The end of violence, 
the end of war, the end of inequality and poverty? What hope do we have for change? Good news of Isaiah's vision is that all of our longings for a better world are fulfilled in the advent of God's kingdom, as God himself comes to bring peace on earth. Well, when will this happen? When will this happen? Let's go back to the start of the prophecy. Look at verse 2. He starts it like this. In the last days. When will it happen? In the last days. From Isaiah's perspective, writing in 600 BC, a long time ago, the last days are his future. He looks ahead that one day God himself will come as king to rule on the earth. For us, there's a sense that the last days are our past. We look back and we celebrate at Christmas time the arrival of the newborn king, the one who fulfills Isaiah's vision and brings God's kingdom of peace. You might remember the songs of the angels on that first Christmas night. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth what? On earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. And yet, living after the arrival of this king, we still see a world divided. And so there's also a sense that the last days are our future. Jesus has come bringing God's kingdom, but his work is not complete. The story of the New Testament doesn't end on Easter Sunday, but it claims that Jesus has risen to his throne in heaven and we await his return from there to to consummate God's kingdom, to finally bring an end to death and destruction, to bring God's peace on earth. Now, I realise that that claim might seem crazy to believe. Jesus is going to come back. He's been gone a long time. But at the very least, this is a story we should want to be true, that at the end of history, our maker will return to set the world right, that there will come a day where there is no more death or disease or disaster because God himself will make all things new and bring peace on the earth. There's a sense in which the last days are our past, the last days are our future. There's also a sense in which the last days are our today, our present. Isaiah's vision ends with this word to God's people in verse 5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The light of God has shone on us in Christ. Jesus' vision for his church is that we are the light of the world. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl, he says. They put it on a stand and it gives light to all. Let your light shine in the world that people may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. As we wait for his return, God is now advancing his peace, advancing his justice, advancing his light in the world through his church. Advent, the season that begins today, helps us live into this story. It reminds us that we are to be people who walk in the light, people who love our neighbours in practical ways. 
Christmas, of course, is a time for us to receive gifts. And if you ask my kids what they're excited for Christmas, it's all about presents, isn't it? Christmas is a time for us to receive gifts, just as we receive the best gift that God has ever given. But Christmas is also a time for us to be like our Father in heaven, who is an extravagant gift giver. And so over the next month, as you do all the craziness that needs to happen as you prepare for Christmas, buying all the presents, stuffing the stockings, wrapping the Christmas gifts and putting them under the tree, sorting out your Christmas lights, sorting out your Christmas lunch, going around to all your work Christmas parties if they're happening with COVID restrictions, let me encourage you to consider how you can walk in the light, how you can be like our Father in heaven and be generous to the least of these. Last year, as a church family, we raised over $4,000 for the Wayside Chapel Christmas Appeal, provide lunch for those living rough in our city. And we're talking at the moment about a similar opportunity for us as a church family this year to be generous uh, to our neighbours. So stay tuned for that um, and come ready to be generous over the next few weeks. Advent begins today. And Advent helps us position ourselves to live rightly within this story. Advent helps us sit with Isaiah the prophet and Old Testament Israel, waiting with them for the fulfillment of God's promises to bring his kingdom. Advent prepares us for Christmas to welcome our king, to gather around the manger in wonder at the mystery of the incarnation. Advent trains us to wait for his return at the end of history, to be people who live with hope. And Advent helps us to walk in the light, to live as citizens of God's kingdom in the present, working for peace in our broken world today. We all want a better world. We all want a better world. And Isaiah shows us that only the government of God will bring it. Advent trains us to wait and pray for that day where his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven and to play our part today in bringing his peace on the earth. Let's pray. Jesus, you taught us to pray. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You taught us to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. As we enter this season of Advent, the season of waiting and expectation for your kingdom to come, may we make this prayer our own. May we be people who live with hope and people who walk in the light waiting for that day where you will bring peace on the earth and also working today to bring it in our neighbourhoods. pray this in Jesus' name.